All right. Uh, thank you. Uh, happy few who, uh, who tuned into this at this completely ridiculous time that I'm doing this right now. Uh, I basically, I've been trying to figure out a good time to do one of these all week. I definitely wanted to do one about the Curtis Yarvin article in Jacobin and, uh, it just kind of kept on not working out. Um, as some of you may know, I, you know, recently moved to Mexico, got in, you know, beginning, you know, set up there. Uh, and, uh, there's been a lot going on related to that. And, you know, a few days ago, I drove back into the U S to spend some time with family over the holidays. And then I've been spending time with family over the holidays and there was just sort of consistently no good time to do this. So we ended up doing this completely objectively ridiculous thing where, um, I'm doing this at, you know, like quarter after 10, uh, at, uh, uh, on um, Christmas Eve, and that's if you live on the West Coast. If you live on the East Coast, it's like quarter after one in the morning. Uh, so very grateful for those of you who uh, did show up. And it also means that whereas I am going to you know, start out by talking about the Curtis Yarvin article, I'm also very happy to just take the discussion wherever people want to take it. Uh, again, anybody who is, you know, whether you're sort of uh, – up late rapid presence and you want something to listen to or uh you just you know have stuff you need to get off your chest about curtis yarvin or uh you want to ask me about completely unrelated topics uh any of those are fine and yeah if you're uh if you're with us um you know if you're with us at this uh at this late time uh then uh, you deserve to have your answer question on any t- your question answered uh, rather on any topic, uh, and in that spirit, I will uh, I will start out with um, Andy uh, Matter's question, which was, uh, "Is Santa real?" Uh, I'm I'm afraid to inform you, no, but uh, that does remind me of a wonderful. So I have not had a chance to read the whole article yet, but Terry Eagleton uh, had an article out a few days ago, or uh, I guess just a day ago in Unheard called Have Yourself a Countercultural Christmas. And the opening paragraph of that article is so good, I just have to read it out. In Lapland, just out inside the Arctic Circle, you can visit Santa Claus any time of the year because that's where he lives. No doubt, Eagleton continues, this requires a plentiful supply of Santas. I hope nobody under the age of seven is reading this, some of whom may be graduates of a course in Santa Claus studies you can take at the University of Lapland. Like Santa's everywhere, you need a generous girth, a certain facility with the ho-ho-hos, a lack of lurid facial tattoos, and no history of pedophilia. I once saw such a generous girthed image of Santa Claus in a shop window in Beijing at a time when a newly modernizing China was getting to grips with Christmas. The fact that he was pinned to a cross suggested that they still had some way to go. Uh, so that made me laugh, so I'm going to share it with you. But meanwhile, um, I have a uh, call from one of the best people in the world because he's in my capital class. Bide. What's on your mind, Bide? Hey, what's going on, Ben? How you doing? Oh, pretty good. How are you? Good. Oh, not too bad. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah and uh, any other holidays. I don't. I still don't know. Uh, I think you celebrate Kwanzaa. I think that's your uh, 
Yeah, that's the primary. Yep. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, do, do we have class tomorrow or no? <laughs> uh, no, no. I, I, I think that uh, whether people, I think I said in the uh, the Patreon, whether people are uh, are unwrapping presents uh, with the families or they're out eating Chinese food, depending on their cultural tradition. I'm not really sure what Muslims do. Uh, then, yeah. uh, then, like, either way, they probably have better things to do with capital class, but on New Year's for sure. Yeah, okay, on New Year's, okay, great, great. That's, that's, uh, because I don't have friends in real life anymore. Uh, so, uh, well, I mean, even if you're up, like, having fun on New Year's Eve, then, like, you know, whatever, I mean, you still, how long are you going to keep it up after midnight? You can, you know, you can make, you know, you can be a little bleary-eyed for capital in the morning. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it kind of helps sometimes because, you know, sometimes it's, especially when you don't know what the fuck he's talking about. Um, and like taking the right kind of drugs can kind of put you in the mood, uh, put you in the headspace. Um, Fair enough. So, um, yeah, in our Christmas tradition, too, just so everyone knows, is we actually get Chinese food and then wrap that and then <laughs> unwrap it uh, just because we want to make sure we get a little bit of everything nice. uh, every Christmas. So, nice. um uh, well, I was just meal prepping and being nosy to see what was going on with Colin, and uh, you just happened to be here, so figured it was a good time to call in. But uh, I, I like will, it. I will cede the space for people who have actual real questions, so that you can continue to expand their minds as you have uh, mine and so many others. So <laughs> uh, continue well, I on. <laughs> I appreciate that, bud. Um, so, uh, so I guess one way of getting into the sort of um, uh, starter subject here about uh, Yarvin would be to look at um, some of the uh, some of the comments on uh, on the uh, you know Jacobin's posts. Um, so, you know, Jacobin, of course, when my uh, article about you know, so the name of the article is right-wing blogger Curtis Yarvin is wrong. Democracy is good. Uh, you know, that is the Jacobin House style. You just have uh, article titles that just sort of in the most direct way humanly possible say what's in the article. Uh, but as, um, you know, as as uh, sort of unremarkable as democracy is good might sound as a comment, um you know, that's like, man, you know, why would, you know, really going to go out on a limb with that one, with that take? Uh, nevertheless, uh, this post that I'm looking at, this is, uh, this is Jacobin's tweet on December 21st, is full of angry replies from Curtis Yarvin fans who don't think democracy is good. Um, so uh, my, um, uh, my favorite, um, uh, my favorite comment uh, on there. I'll, I'll skip the opening obscenity, uh, but um, but he refers to the debate that I did a couple months ago with Yarvin, uh, and refers to me as a schlubby-looking New York Khazar Marxist. Which man, if you do not know your anti-Semitic deep cuts, that Khazar thing, uh, you know, you might have to Google that. Uh, but uh, in uh, in any case. Um, the <laughs> uh yeah that's uh that i think that tells you something about 
uh, the kind of people who might vibe hardest with some of what you're even saying. Obviously, it's also funny because I grew up in mid-Michigan, so, you know, not only is it, you know, uh, over-the-top anti-Semitism, but it's also, you know, Midwest erasure. So, you know, that, that's really the most objectionable thing about it. Also funny because, uh, you know, Yarvin uh, himself is uh, is Jewish. I don't know if his fans don't know that or just decide that he's one of the good ones. Uh but yeah, uh see in the uh <laughs> in the chat, um yeah, uh yeah, Antonio Cazar's uh so there's a medieval kingdom where the uh the king for a while converted to Judaism and it actually seems like they're pretty religiously tolerant, so it's not like everybody who lived there did the same or anything. Uh, but, um, but there's a sort of fringe anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that like, um, all the Jews now are really descended from Khazars and not from, uh, and not from ancient Jews. Uh, so that's what it's, it's, a uh, you know, it, it's like I said, it's a deep cut. <laughs> uh, Supreme Soviet says my understanding of Yarvin is that he just has a different definition of what democracy is. Yes and no. I think he's actually very inconsistent on this point, whether he's saying that, oh, actually, if we did what he wanted, that would really be democracy, or he's saying it wouldn't, and that's a good thing, because democracy is a bad idea. In principle, mostly he says the second thing, but he's a little inconsistent. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, Antonio, uh, that was that was one of the best moments of the debate. So we spent all this time at the beginning arguing about U.S. imperialism in Latin America, uh, because, you know, Yarvin's contention is that the United States had in a terribly misguided way been crusading to, you know, extend democracy around the world, uh, and that that had actually, you know, messed everything up. And I pointed out that especially in Latin America, very often American foreign policy was the opposite of that, that, you know, that the, uh, democracy would be squelched, you know, when it led to elected leftist governments. And, so we ended up arguing about Chile, of course, as an obvious example of that. And his he just sort of sidetracked into this weird non sequitur about how Pinochet was like a real Chilean and um and Salvador Allende was uh was like culturally more of an American influenced cosmopolitan or something, which just has absolutely goddamn nothing to do with anything. Like most of his historical digressions is just a chance to show off that he knows something and score some kind of point, even if it's really unrelated to his main argument. Um, in any case, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So, um, so yeah, let me let me start off by going through the article itself. Um, so in um, so in the piece, I start out by saying that Curtis Yarvin's name has been popping up a lot lately. In journalist Max Shafkin's new book, The Contrarian: Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power, Yarvin is described as the house political philosopher of right wing Peter Thiel's right-wing billionaire Peter Thiel's budding movement. That label picked up some plausibility when two Thiel-funded Senate candidates, one successful, Ohio's J.D. Vance, and one not, Arizona's Blake Masters, 
expressed admiration for Yarvin on the 2022 campaign trail. Parenthetically, uh, both of those dudes, J.D. Vance and Blake Masters, I have written about. Uh, the hyperlinks are in this article. Uh, J.D. Vance, I wrote something about for the Daily Beast called The Unbelievably Phony Populism of J.D. Vance. And Blake Masters, I wrote something about for Jacobin called Blake Masters is a Pseudo-Populist Fraud. So those uh, typically subtle titles give you an idea of where I'm coming from. I'm not a fan of these guys, but even given that, it is kind of remarkable and disturbing that they're sort of both citing Curtis Yarvin as an influence on him, considering that Yarvin is um, extremely crazy. So many people would call Yarvin a fascist. Ask him and he'll deny it, though not by professing his love for the universalist ideals of the Enlightenment, but by pointing out that autocratic ideals were common long before the birth of fascism. However precisely you classify his ideology, Curtis Yarvin is bad news. He's a racialist crackpot, openly contemptuous of democracy. And it is disturbing to see a billionaire, two politicians, you know, one of whom just won his race, uh, other one came very close, and a prominent cable news host nodded along to Yarvin's nonsense. What I find even more disturbing, though, is that when you strip away the layers of right-wing edgelordery, the basic thrust of Yarvin's case against democracy is not nearly as foreign as I'd like to believe from the mindset of the U.S. mainstream. The idea that the masses are too stupid for self-rule is already a core belief of the bipartisan establishment. Yarvin, in his own deeply unpleasant way, just says the quiet part loud. Uh, so, as I already mentioned, I debated Yarvin two months ago in Chicago. That was actually the afternoon before the Los Angeles live show that uh, we did with uh, give them a revolution and left reckoning and, uh, or give them an argument left reckoning and this is revolution. I was called the give them a revolution show. So that was in uh, LA that Sunday night and on the Saturday afternoon, I was in Chicago debated Yarvin. Um, so I came away from that debate. I say in the article with the strong impression that Yarvin enjoys shock value a whole lot more than he cares about clarity or internal consistency. He often calls himself a monarchist. If you catch him when he's trying to sound reasonable, he'll explain that all he means by that is that we should have a much stronger presidency within the existing constitutional system. If he's trying to be provocative, he'll talk about finding a suitable Silicon Valley CEO to be the American Augustus, replacing our sclerotic republic with something new and vague and glorious. Now that second mode, the provocative one, is the one he seems to have spent much more time in than not since he started his unqualified reservations blog under his old pen name, uh, Mencius Bullbug, in 2007. Before our debate in Chicago, um, he joked two or three times in my presence that the subject of our back and forth would be whether, this is an exact quote, it was really six million or more like five point five. Of course, you know, Yarvin's Jewish himself, you know, so it's this plausible deniability, it's it's all jokes, whatever. But uh, you know, I think it says something about how much he enjoys edginess, and it also maybe says something about why the dude with the Khazar 
comment is such a fan. Um, you know, he also, I don't mention this in the article, he also made a joke about somebody asked him what his like routine was to like prep for this stuff. And he said he got up and yelled the N word. So, you know, charming guy. But during the debate itself, in fact, with cameras rolling, he insisted that I was a fool for thinking the social and economic policies that yield such good outcomes in countries like Denmark, Norway, and Sweden would work in a country like Haiti, where the, quote, people, unquote, have a different character. So uh, he made a lot of comments along these lines. He says what he thinks of a country. He uh, he thinks of, um, you know, he thinks of a people. Um, and, um, and that, you know, that's what really matters, not the history, not the material conditions that he said, you could take, you know, the population of Japan, and just stick them in Haiti, you know, under the same historical and economic circumstances, and they'd do just fine. You know, Haiti is just such a basket case because of the people. That is his explicit position. Uh, so I say in the article, reality check Current conditions in Haiti aren't exactly hard to understand if you know literally anything about what's been done to that country over the last couple of centuries. Uh, there's a hyperlink in the article to something I wrote for Compact uh, called Hands Off Haiti, uh, where I talked about proposals to send a U.S.-led peacekeeping mission to Haiti since, you know, after the last zillion uh, colonial interventions ended disastrously. This is the one that would be good. Um, and in in that article, I mean, I went through a lot of this history, but I mean, it is like pretty amazing how dumb what Yarvin is saying here is that if you look at the entire history of Haiti, like literally from its birth as before its birth as an independent country to the present, it's like, what's this period of time when they were supposed to be able to get their shit together without imperial meddling and super exploitation getting in the way? Um, in fact, you know, they, so, uh, you know, independence came about in 1804, uh, you know, after the successful, long, drawn-out, bloody slave revolution that essentially destroyed the entire economy of Haiti in the process, um, like, almost literally, because it was, it was that bad, you know, the sort of process of, of fighting off, you know, like, defeating the actual slaveholders, in San Domingue, it was called back then, uh, and, you know, fighting off various foreign armies and et cetera. I mean, like, really just, uh, by some estimates, I mean, it could be as much as, like, half of the adult population of Haiti died in that process. Um, and then by 1825, to get France to stop messing with them, uh, they agreed to this indemnity deal where they essentially, you know, they had to agree to pay France for all the property lost in the revolution, primarily meaning human beings, you know, slaves. Uh, so, you know, it's the exact opposite of the kind of reparations for slavery people argue about now. Uh, what was imposed on Haiti was reparations by the descendants of slaves to the descendants of the slaveholders. And like literally just to give you a sense of, of how bad this was, um, that, this debt wasn't finally fully paid off until 1947, right? 1947, two years after the end of World War II. And there's only about 10 years in between that and the installation of Papa Doc Duvalier, 
who's this brutal, uh, bloody right-wing dictator uh, who was backed by the United States for standard Cold War anti-communist reasons, and then you know, his son, Baby Doc, uh, ruled after him, and the Duvaliers were uh, only ousted finally in 1986. Uh at which point uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide became the first, you know, genuinely democratically elected president. One of his campaign promises, by the way, was that he said he was going to raise the Haitian people. This is a quote from misery to poverty. Uh, he was overthrown in a 1991 coup. It's unclear how much the CIA might have had to do with that coup. It's a matter of public record. Nobody denies this part. Some of the coup plotters had been on the CIA payroll for several years beforehand, but a lot of people think, okay, but the agency itself may have had no direct involvement or prior knowledge of what was coming, and the United States actually did you know, intervene to restore our state a few years later. But in 2004, he was overthrown again, and this time literally U.S. Marines escorted him out of the country. Uh, direct you know, boots-on-the-ground involvement on the side of the coup. Uh, and then there were foreign troops on the island for much of the period between then and 2017. Uh, four years after that, uh, there was uh, uh, President Moise uh, in, uh, in Haiti was assassinated by people who seemed to have a lot of connections in Miami. Um, so this is, um, you know, <laughs> uh, this idea that it's like, oh, no, this is just some sort of cultural or genetic fact about Haitians that they're messed up. That's why Haiti is such a basket case is just, um, I mean, obviously it's extremely offensive, but I mean, what I really want to emphasize is how fucking stupid it is. Uh, so asked point blank by the moderator, Thad Russell, whether Yarvin thought the explanation for Haitian dysfunctionality was cultural or genetic, Yarvin evaded the question, saying he didn't know how to test the difference. So that's Yarvin in his balls-to-the-wall provocative mode. For Yarvin in his reasonable mode, you can watch uh, his back and forth with Cenk Uger on the Young Turks, which is not that much longer before uh, my conversation with him. On TYT, uh, Yarvin rolled out a couple of arguments he's made elsewhere, that the founding fathers intended presidents to have as much unilateral power as CEOs have in corporations, and that uh, this goes to one of the questions earlier in the chat, that since the only election people really care about is the presidential race, concentrated all power in the hands of the executive, would really, if you think about it, actually be the most democratic thing to do. It would be like, you know, I don't know, whatever dumbass phrase he uses, monarchist democracy or democratic monarchy or something like that. Uh, but he tried to give all this a Young Turks-friendly twist by saying that FDR was a great example of a president who ruled like a monarch. And this came up in my debate, too. He said, sure, FDR had to get his New Deal programs past Congress, but that's just a sort of fiction, because Congress was just a rubber stamp for King Roosevelt. And the germ of truth in this argument is that the gradual consolidation of executive power, what historians said, you know, Arthur Schlesinger wrote a book about this, called the Imperial Presidency, really did start in this period, uh, before but particularly during World War II with the expansion of the military and the intelligence services. But in calling FDR a dictator, you know, thus recapping 
a characterization thrown around by the most unhinged portions of the right in the 30s and 40s. Yarvin is conflating the very different questions of institutional power and political effectiveness. Now, Congress didn't, in fact, always act as a rubber stamp to FDR. In fact, I, you know, in some cases, I wish they did more of that. Uh, maybe they wouldn't have had the budget cuts in 1937 that actually um, reversed a lot of the progress the country had made in getting out of the Depression. Um, after, you know, his um, court reform plan to add new justices, the Supreme Court would stop uh, inval- you know, would stop throwing out New Deal programs. Uh, died in the face of congressional resistance. But to the extent that Congress did act as a rubber stamp for FDR, which, you know, to some extent they did, especially in the first couple of years, that was because his agenda was wildly popular. At least during those early years, even many conservative-leading Democratic congressmen um, weren't prepared to anger their constituents by voting against FDR's proposals. But that's not monarchy it's, or democratic monarchy or monarchist democracy or whatever that's representative democracy happening on the legislative level that's legislators doing the thing they know their constituents want them to do uh an example that's actually much closer to what yarvin's talking about at least what he says in his so-called reasonable mode is the administration of george w bush who really did dramatically and unilaterally boost the institutional power of the presidency Whereas FDR went to Congress for a declaration of war, even after the attack on Pearl Harbor, Bush pronounced the entire planet one big battlefield in the war on terror and said he didn't need specific congressional approval because the sort of vague authorization to use military force after 9-11 was good enough. Bush set up a global network of black sites where suspected terrorists were detained without trial and tortured. He started a program of mass spying on the U.S. public. And outside of American borders, he established the practice, which was, of course, later enlarged by Presidents Obama and Trump, of just ordering terrorism suspects executed without trial by unmanned drones. Now, that's a much less positive legacy than the New Deal, but it is what President seizing monarch-like power actually looks like in the real world. All right. I'm just going to check the chat real quick, uh, see if there's anything. Yeah, exactly, Murphy. Uh, it's it's hard to uh, pull through when there's a other giant country uh, right next to you, uh, much more powerful with its boot on your neck. Um, yeah, Supreme Soviet, I'm going to call bullshit on that. Uh, Supreme Soviet says, but almost other, every country has a tumultuous history. Most have figured out how to pull through it. No, I'm sorry. That's just not true. Like, most countries do not have a history that's anything like Haiti's history. Um, you know, the United States uh, was not spending a massive portion of its GDP every year until 1947, paid off some massive debt to a more more powerful foreign nation that had been forced to pay since 1825, for example, right? I mean, they they just, different countries are in radically disanalogous circumstances. And unless you want to put your head in your sand on that, I think you have to admit, in fact, I think you're frankly an idiot if you don't admit that uh, those circumstances are more than enough to account for the differences. Um, You're just not a serious person if you deny that. Uh, let's see. Um, 
Uh, I Obamov says, look out for Fetus Doctavalier. The grandson, Nicholas, uh, is still lurking. Um, I remember on Blackadder, if anybody ever watched that show, old Rowan Atkinson show, pre-Mr. Bean, I think, uh, there was a joke about Pitt the Elder, Pitt the Younger, and Pitt the Gleam in the Milkman's Eye. Uh, so um, kind of the the same uh, same sort of deal. Um, but, all right, uh, going back to the article, uh, Yarvin's dodge about how absolute presidential power would amount to democratic monarchy or monarchist democracy or whatever because voters only care about presidential elections is hard to square with his frequent statements that the United States not only isn't, but shouldn't be a democracy. Uh, he said that at the event with me at Thaddeus Russell. He, he said that in an article he just had out in Compact. He said that a bunch of places. And as soon as Yarvin starts talking about, quote, the cathedral, unquote, he's given away the game. Yarvin likes to say that Jeff Bezos doesn't really own the Washington Post. He just sponsors it. This is a line that Yarvin likes to repeat. He said it on his Substack, the Gray Muir. Uh, he said it at the event with me. Uh, so Yarvin thinks it's the newsroom that holds the real power. The cathedral is Yarvin's term for the layer of elite journalists and academics who he claims mold public opinion and ultimately dictate the direction of society. And the real reason we need a monarchy, a leader willing to be more of a monarch than even George W. Bush was. So besides Augustus, Yarvin's preferred historical examples are Napoleon and Lenin, is precisely that such a figure would operate independently at the whims of public opinion and hence break the power of the cathedral. That's Yarvin's argument. And it's one that just makes it clear that the, oh, well, actually, if you think about it, that would actually be more democratic uh, line is, is just a dodge. Now, some of what Yarvin says about the cathedral is akin to taking Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman's propaganda model uh, from uh, their classic book from the 80s, Manufacturing Consent, which analyzes how corporate media sets the limits of acceptable debate and stripping that model of everything that, that makes it make sense. Chomsky and Herman focus on media ownership as an essential part of the story. Yarvin essentially asks his listeners to ignore the billionaire behind the curtain pretending not to understand that Bezos could fire and replace the editors of the Washington Post anytime he felt like it, and more importantly, that those editors wouldn't have made it to those positions in the first place if they saw the world in a way that even allowed for the possibility that they would briefly entertain thoughts that would threaten the interests of anyone rich enough to buy the Post. Um, yeah, an example I brought up in the debate is if you look at MSNBC's history, uh, like in like 2003, uh, they fired everybody who worked for them who was opposed to the war in Iraq and sort of did a big right turn. And then later they decided to rebrand themselves uh, and as like the liberal alternative to Fox. Uh, and it's like not like they weren't able to fire people and bring them in as these changes dictated. Um, that, you know, sure, can there be institutional resistance? Of course. But that's like saying that the Russian army doesn't have any power because uh, it's hard for them 
to conquer Ukraine. That like, yeah, economic power is real power. That doesn't mean that like there's no, you know, there's no institutional inertia that it could butt up against. But ultimately, my money is always going to be on economic power uh, in those those conflicts, as a general rule, at least. All right, Chomsky and Herman also identify anti-communism as an animated impulse of corporate media propaganda. Yarvin refuses to make distinctions between Marxists and the editorial board of the New York Times. Um, everybody to the left of Peter Thiel, or maybe to the left of uh, Metternich, is lumped into one giant category intent on moving societies in an insidiously progressive direction. Sometimes Yarvin lapses into the common conservative belief that Joe Sixpack, which is a phrase he actually used in his debate with me, he also told me that Haitian cab drivers agree with him about Haitian inferiority, which is, you know, like a demented fascist version of uh, the Thomas Friedman a habit of attributing, you know, saying, oh, I was, you know, like starting all of his columns with supposed conversations with cab, with cab drivers who agree with him about everything. But sometimes Yarvin lapses into the, you know, common conservative belief that, quote, Joe Sixpack, unquote, is secretly conservative. But more often, he thinks Mr. Sixpack's belief are simply molded by the cathedral. In real life, counterexamples to both of these generalizations are everywhere. Look, does propaganda work to some extent? Of course it does. But does it work to a total extent? Is is it possible to push back against it? Of course it is. Um, and there are all sorts of signs that it is, you know, if somewhat effective, far from infallibly effective. Opinion polls show, for example, that most Americans believe that Joe Biden should do more to pursue a peace settlement with Vladimir Putin even if Ukraine would have to make some compromises in the process. Does anyone anywhere think this is a result of American mainstream media propagandizing from de-escalation to peace talks? And redistributive economic policies like Medicare for All and a higher minimum wage enjoy a surprising amount of support even among some Republican voters. During the last presidential election, for example, Trump won Florida, but a ballot measure uh, mandated a $15 minimum wage won by more than Trump did. So does Yarvin think progressives in the media hypnotized a bunch of Trump voters into supporting the minimum wage measure, even though the cathedral was unable to convince them not to vote for Trump? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, okay, so last portion, uh, just, just want to, um, you know, yeah, just tie all this together a little bit. So last part of the article, I say much of Yarvin's worldview is eccentric, closer to what you find in the moldier quarters of Reddit than in the rhetoric of any mainstream figure. Even politicians who fearmonger aggressively about immigrants or, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, rioters doing chaos in the streets or whatever, feel the need to deny that they're racist, for example, uh, whereas Yarvin kind of leads into it. And in 2002, even in those dark days, I never heard anyone say that Bush should seize as much personal power as Napoleon or Augustus. But there is a core of Yarvin's stance of democracy that's just very much not foreign to the American mainstream. And I'm not just talking here about mainstream Republican politicians who want to ban books and make it harder to vote. Uh, have hyperlinks to things I've written about both of those subjects, uh, the book banning and the election laws. Um, 
But I think that the anti-democratic rot goes much deeper than those guys. Does Yarvin believe that Joe Sixpack is incapable of self-government? Well, so does everybody who supports America's economic status quo, in which most people take orders from unelected bosses during the eight hours a day they're at work. In most cases, without even a limited voice, workers can get in capitalist workplaces by organizing a union. Does Yarvin believe ordinary people are too stupid to decide for themselves what to believe? So does every mainstream liberal who believes it's important for Twitter and Facebook and Spotify uh, to sort out truth from falsehoods so that can censor misinformation. Now, I'm not suggesting that Yarvin is no worse than mainstream liberals or even mainstream conservatives. In important ways, Yarvin is much worse. I find it disturbing that people like Senator-elect J.D. Vance acknowledge him as an influence. But such comparisons shouldn't bind, blind us to the disturbing commonalities between Yarvin and less eccentric conservatives and, frankly, even liberals. Yarvin's edgelord bluntness drives him to openly express what's implicit in far more mainstream ideas. If you believe that all of us should have a say in the way our society is run, you know, if you deeply think that it's wrong to force anyone to live under rules that they don't have a voice in shaping, then Yarvin is certainly your enemy, but a lot of people who don't say these things nearly as bluntly or crassly as Mr. Moldbug are your enemies too. Okay, uh, anybody wants to call in with any thoughts, pushback, questions, objections, any of that stuff, uh, this is the time. Also, uh, as I said, uh, since uh, I'm amazed that there are even as many people as this who are tuned in for one of these at uh, almost 11 on the West Coast uh, on the night of Christmas Eve, uh, you know, I'm more than happy to reward anybody's, uh, you know, sticking it out and doing this uh, by answering wildly off-topic questions or, you know, engaging in whatever's on your mind. So please don't go ahead and do that. If anybody does want to call in, this is the time. Uh, meanwhile, I suppose I'm going to talk uh, just a very little bit about some stuff that is uh, that is coming up. Um, in the near future. So uh, something that is related, of course, to the article we just finished going through is uh, I think my first Jacobin article for the new year in 2023 is going to be a look back at Chomsky and Herman's book, Manufacturing Consent, which is where they talk about that uh, propaganda model. So I'm going to be working on that uh, this week. We'll certainly be talking about that on Colin, you know, when that starts to uh, that starts to come together uh, a little uh, um, a little bit better, but um, but it you know a little bit more rather. Um, so yeah, but meanwhile, uh, probably within a day or two after Christmas, I'm going to be launching the new project, which is uh, going to be on Substack. Uh, it's going to be called Philosophy for the People. And I will certainly be, you know, when I put up the announcement post of the Substack, I'll certainly do a call in to talk about it. But I mean, just to, to preview that a little bit uh, for you guys right now, uh, this is something I've kind of been mulling um, 
for a while, you know, people at Substack uh, got in touch with me and had a meeting with me several months ago, see if I was had any interest in, in uh, starting something there. And I don't want to do one where I just do the kind of thing that I do for, for Jacobin or the Daily Beast or Current Affairs because I like publishing in all those places. And um, I, you know, I see no advantage to sort of moving uh, the kind of political writing that I do for those places to a different website. I'm just as happy to stay where I am as far as that goes. Um, and, but the more I thought about it, I realized that there actually is something that I don't get a chance to do much of in the normal places that I publish that I actually would really like to do as a Substack, which is to write more about philosophy. Like I've had this idea for a while, you know, for a while about an essay about David Hume's arguments about suicide in the afterlife and kind of related that the historical period he's in. Um, and I, I've kind of had these thoughts going back to 2019 that I'd really like sort of popular philosophy writing to be a much bigger part of my output. And I think this is a good way to do that. So I'm really excited about it. I will certainly be, uh, be talking about um, talking about that much, much more. But again, look out for an announcement post uh, on the Substack. It's going to be, it's not really set up yet, but it's going to be bedburgess.substack.com. Uh, so look out for an announcement post, like I said, within about a day or two after Christmas. But I did say I would answer people's questions about whatever. Um, so Andy Matter says, under which Star Trek captain would you most prefer to serve? Also, hell yeah, manufacturing consent rocks. Looking forward to that. Uh, hard agree on that second part. Uh, uh, very good book. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know that this is actually who I'd prefer to serve under because it seems like he might be reckless and, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe Picard would be safer, but, you know, it's, it's certainly as far as which one I'd rather watch. I've, I've always been, uh, I've always been a Kirk guy, but, uh, we have an actual call for Brown. So I'm going to take that before we call tonight. Brown, what is on your mind? Hey, can you hear me? Um, yep. I'm wondering how does Nick Land and I guess uh, like formal philosophy tie into Curtis Yarvin? I mean, I tried reading some of Nick Land, but it's just boring and incomprehensible to me. Maybe I need more coffee and like attention span. But I'm just wondering how much pull or traction Curtis Yarvin's idea has in in the academy. Um, yeah, that's that's my question. Thanks for doing the show. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the call. Uh, yeah, I mean, my experience with Nick Land isn't that different. I remember um, a few years ago seeing a lot of buzz about his book, Fang Numina, and I've still got a copy sitting on my shelf somewhere. I tried to read it. I didn't I didn't get that far. It's possible that I'm missing, um, you know, it's possible that I'm missing, uh, I'm missing something that's really profound. I will say... The only thing that makes me think that there might be something interesting in Nick Land is that, you know, Mark Fisher uh, thought that there was something interesting in Nick Land at one point. You know, I think this maybe before Land became quite such an obnoxious reactionary. But uh, that does maybe make me think that he, you know, there might be something more interesting going on with him than with somebody like Yarvin. 
uh, who just does these rambling historical digressions that don't really connect up to the arguments he's supposed to be talking about. Really traffics in a lot of cheap shock value, uh, seems somewhat incoherent to me, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, I will say also probably with the Nick Land thing, some of this is just stylistic that, you know, the kind of philosophy that I tend to vibe with the most uh, is, uh, you know, analytic. So even, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a Marxist, but even the, the Marxism that I like the most is analytic Marxism, like J.A. Cohen. Uh, and, you know, Nick Land is obviously coming out of a very continental sort of um, view. Now, I like lots of people who do. I mean, I, I, I am, uh, look, I've, I've had Slavoj Zizek as a guest on my show like five times. I think he always says interesting, insightful things. I, I love Mark Fisher, um, you know, for example. Um, but, um, you know, but that, that, you know, like, you know, nevertheless, right. These are exceptions and, uh, you know, that bias might also be relevant here. As far as the part of your question about, um, about the Academy, I don't think Yarvin himself probably exercises much influence over academics, which I'm sure he would tell you that's because academia is part of the cathedral. Uh, I would say that, um, you know, I mean, look, if if Yarvin isn't exercising much influence over academics, uh, that much is to the credit of academics. But I would maybe go back to the point that I made in the article about how, look, Yarvin is going to be this weird, crass, racist, sort of rambling version of some of these ideas. But are there versions of it, of some of these same points that do have a lot more purchase in the academy? Yeah, unfortunately, I think there are. Um, I think that, like, there's a kind of technocratic liberalism that's very popular among academics that actually does share some anti-democratic DNA with um, <laughs> uh, with uh, with Yarvin um, Murphy. Mark Fisher is uh, well. He was kind of the original founder of the first version of Zero Books. Uh, he wrote uh, a really, really insightful, uh, kind of depressingly insightful essay about the sort of pathologies of the left, and particularly the online left, called "Exit the Vampire Castle." Uh, what I'm going to mention is a very small part of his outcome. It's just the part that I spent the most time with. Uh, he also wrote a really fascinating book that's essentially about uh, neoliberalism called Capitalist Realism, which is a very short book. It's very readable, but uh, there's it's very um, yeah, it's, it's very accessible, but it's 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 like a, it's it's something that's worth grappling with. If you've never read Capitalist Realism, I would uh, I would suggest I would suggest checking it out. All right, on that recommendation, I think I am. Uh, I think I'm going to call it a night. Uh, so I am. Uh, I should say I'm back on the Gringo side of the border right now for the holidays. I'm in uh, California, not Baja California, but it is still very nice here. I understand that it is hellishly frozen in much of the country right now. Uh, but uh, so if you are uh, dealing with that, uh, then my sympathy, I don't know, come to California. But um, meanwhile, yeah, uh, Merry Christmas, if that's your thing. Happy Hanukkah. Uh, 
you know, whatever you say for Kwanzaa, <laughs> you know, uh, happy whatever you're doing. Uh, appreciate everybody who uh, who did stick it out with this this late. Uh, we'll probably do another one of these early next week.